welcome back to the Taproot Podcast. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. Have you ever felt like you made a big mistake in a career decision? I would guess that many of you are nodding in agreement. Well, today we talk with Rosangela Ross Sazani, assistant professor in the Department of Plant and Microbial Biology at North Carolina State University. Ross made a big career decision, then reversed it, and says she's stronger and happier for the experience. And now, on to the conversation. Welcome to the Taproot. We're happy to be back in your earbuds this week. Today's guest is Ross Sazani. She's an assistant professor at North Carolina State University. And uh, welcome to the Taproot, Ross. Thank you. Thank you, Lise. We're happy to have you here. So just a quick bio um, about Ross. She's got a pretty interesting CV. So she did her PhD in Italy at the University of Pavia and then wrapped up her last year as a um, semester abroad at exactly the same place she is now, North Carolina State University. After that, she did a postdoc in the Benfi lab at Duke. From there, she spent two years as an assistant professor back at the University of Pavia. Um, And then in 2013, she moved back to North Carolina State University. So she's been back and forth between these two universities quite a bit. Her CV has a, a, a ton of beautiful things on it, including winning an NSF career award, many travel awards, and a huge amount of committee work, Ross, <laughs> I'm noticing. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about a paper that just came out in PNAS by uh, De Luis Balaguer, and this is a fantastic paper. I loved reading it because I've started, just recently started thinking more, I'm a little late to the game here, about how to use network modeling and mathematical modeling to answer questions in biology. And so uh, what I understood was that trying to really understand these dynamic interactions between cells at the root apical meristem, which is just this, I think it's so fascinating the way things are set up with stem cells surrounding these quiescent center cells that are telling everybody who they should be, and then these columns of cells specified by the initial cells that surround the quiescent center. I, I just think it's, it's such a beautiful system, but the question is, how does that get set up? And so they used transcriptional, let's see, gene regulatory network in, inference algorithm, which I'm going to ask you to describe in layman's terms or laywoman's terms, to essentially identify a new factor, in this case, periantha, which I'm pretty sure had been previously identified because it those it, it, it hasn't affected floral development is that right correct yeah and so they they showed that it has a key regulatory role in controlling um, quiescent center stability and infer a bunch of down, downstream regulators and so it's using I think the key discovery here if I understand correctly is to combine both the spatial expression of these transcription factors with their temporal expression during root development how does how does that sound as a summary it sounds very good yes in this case we wanted to use spatial temporal data and in unbiased way developing a new algorithm identify 
what are these regulators? And we focus specifically in, in the plant stem cell. We needed to find a way that our data could be informative. And so Angels, the postdoc uh, leading this project, amazing postdoc, she has a PhD in electric and computer engineer, and she said, easy busy, we can write this uh, dynamic vision network inference and based on correlation in time and probability in time, we can, with a high certainty, identify the causal relationship, so the regulation of gene A versus gene B. And we started to develop this new algorithm, and then we were having fun, and we developed more and more and more and more algorithm. Well, so so let me let me ask like a clarification question. So the idea here is that if one gene is expressed temporally prior to another gene, you are inferring that it's required for it. I think I'm having trouble understanding how you can infer causal relationships from temporal data. Let's say he was conceptually. The idea is that if you have a time course data and you think that gene A may regulate gene B, you would always see in your time course data sort of correlation in their expression. At time point one, gene A will be on, let's say. At time point two, gene B will be on, and then you look At time point two, what happens to gene A? And at time point three, what happened to gene B? So if they keep on being in the same, let's say, correlation pattern, then you can assume you need to make a mathematical assumption. Yeah, I get it. That makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the word inference is perfect for that. Right, correct. So so practically, we are just developing a predictive model based on probability, this is just a way that you can then narrow down and focus on what gene you may or the network may show to have an important role so that biologically then you validate its function as we did in the paper. Yeah, so that brings me to my next question, which is that Wax 5 is like this key regulator mm-hmm. and you go on to study it quite a bit, but it you don't, it didn't show up in the network. It didn't show up because what we have used for these cell type specific expression were microarray data. And so in the microarray, the ATH1 Affymatrix array didn't contain WOX5. But I can certainly tell you that we'll learn about that. And so we had now a new series of RNA-seq data, and I can tell you that WOX5 is indeed in the quiescent-sentin network. I also think it's a good example of knowing what is outside the questions you're able to ask right now. The ATH1 array was this incredibly powerful tool mm-hmm. when it came out in 2005. Many of us did lots of experiments with it, but it's important to know what you're actually not measuring. And, and even though RNA-seq is a, is a great improvement, mm-hmm. and it's important to understand what you're not able to measure with your tools and, and, and consider how that might be affecting what you're trying to conclude. So I, I think this is just one of those neat examples of that kind of thing. Great point. I'm actually also curious, you mentioned that 
the first author on this paper is an electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. And I know you also have you have multiple electrical engineers in your <laughs> lab. There is a correlation between genetic networks and electric network, genetic circuit and electric circuit. And so somehow I'm able to communicate this uh, vision and this interest to electric and computer engineer and they connect very well with me. And then we approach these wiring problems in an engineering and biological manner all together. I learned so much from my postdoc and uh, I'm having so much fun. Have you always worked with electrical engineers or is that something you started when you started your faculty position? I certainly started with my faculty position here at NC State because of the environment and uh, amazing engineering school that there is here at NC State. I certainly started to, let's say, communicate and going out of my comfort zone by talking with mathematicians and physicists, statisticians, while I was and during my postdoc. My university where I got my bachelor and master and PhD is where Alexander Volta was. So I think it was just by vicinity (laughs) (laughs) that I started to get wired up with the electric and computer engineer from the beginning of my academic career. Right, but that that's not your first faculty position, right? You were in Italy for two years before that? I was in Italy for a year and few months, yes. So tell us about how that, how that happened. So it, I think I can honestly say that it is the dream of every person, every foreigner, to get their training and then bring back, if you may allow me to say, expertise to your country, let's say. So that was my dream coming through where I went out for my postdoc and I learned um, new skill. And then I wanted to bring it back to Italy, an amazing country with extremely intelligent, motivated, and dedicated scientist. So that is why I went back to Italy. Plus, in addition, I adore my grandmother, so I wanted to go back and uh, stay with her for the last few years of her life. And everybody knows that I love my grandmother, Nonna. <laughs> but so you go, you, you, you get to live your dream. You, you get this, you have this fantastic postdoc, and then you get a position back at home, but then it... <sighs> long, long, um, and of course, because I left after a short period of time, one would may think it didn't work out, quote unquote, it didn't work out. I came back to the States and I'm living my dream. (laughs) So can you tell us a little more about what, what you were hoping would happen when you went back and maybe what, what wasn't happening? So I can tell you about the challenges and the problem that I face. It was a great opportunity. I was awarded a a career developmental award from a funding source uh, established by an Italian philanthropist. It's uh, five years, about a million dollars, and they're giving 
to the university about $200,000 per year is like a continuing grant. And the very first issue I had is that I didn't have a functional lab. And the functional lab was set in place within few months, but when you are at your first position where you're, you're already stressed, you think that is the beginning of a quote-unquote failure, right? I mean, I think actually that's, that's something that's very common as startup faculty is that there's this lag time between you get the job or you get the offer. And a real question is, when is the actual physical space with the actual physical equipment really going to be ready for you? For me, it was it was a year after I started my position before we actually were able to start collecting data because there was all these renovations that had to happen for our ICP mass spec to be able to, to run and, and all those things. And so that I remember that being an incredibly frustrating time for me. Very frustrating, very stressful. I hope that not that many people have these problems, but that is a reality. And then you start to realize, well, after the renovation take place, do you have the infrastructure that sooner or later will allow you to have and establish a research line? And I had to face the fact that I may have to reconceptualize the research line I had in mind. So like what kind of infrastructure are you talking about? If your research line is doing is based on developing imaging technique or is strongly leveraging a good imaging facility, then you should and I did not, so it was all inexperience. I did not double check that I actually had the imaging infrastructure. So I would have had to travel a lot to obtain the data that I wanted. Um, we do a lot of fluorescent activating cell sorting and I didn't see how we could actually effectively start sorting tasks and many other aspects from greenhouse, Right. And et cetera. So all the infrastructure that I needed to have and to establish a research line. So my learning experience was when I refaced back the, let's say, job market, I was making sure that all of the above were checkbox. Right. So you you get there, you realize, oh, my God, I didn't think this all the way through. Right. So you have the choice to bail or to, I guess, like you were saying, like restructure your research program around what you can do, right? Right. And so that depends on you. And I was very passionate about what I wanted to do. I didn't want to restructure. I thought that it was important to establish a research line where we would develop this kind of computational pipeline and tools. So I consulted mentors, amazing mentors. I talked to friends and colleagues, and then I put down my pros and cons, and then I decided to move on. And then there were other cons, like 
problem with the upper administration in the institute where I went that I couldn't be able to resolve. So that must have been just like your heart must have just been sinking. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I know where oh you're going to go. Oh yes, my, the, my heart I mean, was oh my uh, broken in thousands of little pieces. And my mind was puzzled. And the very first thought that came to me was, I fail. And I'm a very communicative person. And so I share my failure thoughts to my friends and colleagues. So I have an amazing supporting system. When you are in frustrating situation, every little things is a drama. While when you step back, you clearly realize that those are small and little aspects that you should not consider. Of course, you landed on your feet. You're going gangbusters now. But also this idea that you basically got a do-over. If every person could like sort of start up their own lab in a practice run, (laughs) then Mm -hmm. like start it all up a second time. I don't know. I feel like I would do so many things differently if I was starting again. But now like I'm already here. I'm already in a rut. But you got this amazing opportunity to like, I don't know, set the timer back to zero again. It's kind of neat. Six years, fast forward from uh, the beginning of my Italian experience that I now say it was an amazing experience because you do have the possibility now to be more critical and really, I would say, even a better adult. If you look back on your decision to go to Pavia, there were questions that you feel you should have asked ahead of Mm -hmm. time you probably asked them the second time around (laughs) right (laughs) what are the key things that you really feel like you need to be asking about a new position that you you learned from this of course asking about the infrastructure is key and you really need to make sure that the infrastructure are in place in order for your program to succeed Well, the first time around, I was so excited about the opportunity to have an independent position that all the practical things came in a secondary uh, position while they should have been the priority. What I think it was important for me is to talk to people and really understand what was the level of support. So are the department supportive? And I'm in an amazing supporting department. What are the colleagues outside the department? Is a collegial environment, are other discipline interested in collaborating with you? Because you don't want to live in a office room where your ideas stay on your desk. I think this thing about being very pointed about what you're going to need is is so true. I So I did two years of job searching when I was a postdoc. And the first year around, I remember being asked, like, oh, are you going to do electrophysiology? And I'm sure I said something like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> like, I didn't really have a plan of action in the way that I should have. And so by the next year, I was like, I'm doing the key questions in my field are this, this, and this, and we're going to attack it in this way, this way, and this way. And I think that 
it was much more clear to search committees that I had thought about exactly the experiments I was hoping to do in those first years, and it made a big difference. So it's so easy when you're just excited about the science and you've just done whatever's in front of you and it's gone well to think that you'll just keep doing the same thing. Like you'll go in, you'll make a discovery. But when you're when you're running the show, it's so much more important to have a vision. And it sounded like it sounds like what you had the opportunity to develop that the second time around. Yes, indeed. And the important aspect is that you have a vision, but you should also have let's say, a local group of people that share your same vision. So I want to revisit this idea of you coming to a decision point and realizing, I think I made a terrible mistake, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure it's universal or a vast majority of new assistant professors has that feeling at one point or another. And usually it's something that they can handle and they can get past. And I'm wondering if there was a moment where you decided, no, you really had to sit down and make the decision of whether or not to move on, or was it just a gradual thing? And I had to come to a point decision after so, so much talking. I really had to put down and trying to understand were the things that were not fixable And if they were fixable, how much efforts I would have to put to fix it and what kind of balance you would have. By fixing these aspects, would my research continue or my research will be completely hold for a long time? It's not that I made a mistake, but it's the same conceptual thinking. Things are not changing, things are not changing, things are not changing, and then you make the next call. I would not say to a junior faculty, things are beautiful, things are horrible. I would try to make them, quote unquote, rationalize on what can be fixed, what cannot be fixed. And if things are iteratively going in the wrong direction, then that they should think to sit down and maybe make the next step. Yeah, I mean, it seems like to help you distinguish between this is like a normal part right. of first couple years of PIDM or this is just a <laughs> thing that happened to me, but um, I can get over it from like this scenario is, is not operable that you need some external reflection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been super fabulous. Ross, Thank you so much for joining us. How can people reach you if they want to follow up? People can reach me at any time using my Twitter account at Ross Sutsani. Liz, how can people reach you? You can reach me on Twitter at at E Haswell. And you can reach me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. And you can reach the Taproot at at Taproot Podcast. And we also have an email address, which is taproot at plantae.org. And with that, thanks again, Ross. Ross, thank you so much for being so open, sharing your advice and your experience. Thank you, Liz, and thank you, Ivan. Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plantae website. 
It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Melanie Binder. If you like this episode, please tell your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week. Bye.